Easter traditions being no exception to that in terms of strange things that can happen with that. We, of course, here in the States have our bunny, and we have our egg hunts. But other regions of the globe do different things this time of year and for this, this holiday. For instance, the Greek island of Corfu celebrates Easter with the, the annual pot throwing which means they will open the windows of their homes, throw out pots and pans and earthenware right out the window, look out below, and it's meant to symbolize the coming of spring and the anticipation of the new crops. That's what you have there in Corfu. In France, it's nothing like that at all. It's much more subdued. Between Thursday and Easter Sunday, you have the silence of the bells. The story goes like this, that the bells all grew wings and flew to Rome, there to be blessed by the Pope. On Easter Sunday, they return with chocolates and presents for the children. I'm not making that up. That's the story. At least that's the story behind the story. And I'm, I'm not, I don't bring these things up, none of those things. Well, maybe the pot throwing. But um, to poke fun or to say that we ought not to do such things. Traditions, they're fine. Uh, they can lend a, a lot of, of, of memorable experience and frivolity and fun around the holiday, and it's fun in and of itself, so long as, so long as our traditions and our ways of celebrating don't begin to crowd out and eclipse the thing we're celebrating. The traditions and the celebration need to be on the side, on the periphery. What needs to be front and center is the purpose, the function, the significance of the event that we are celebrating in the first place. And I fear that for no few of us, self-included, we need to be reminded of the significance of Easter. What are we celebrating this morning? We've spoken of it a bit already. We've sung of it a bit already. But perhaps we can go a little bit further and allow the, the Word of God to speak quite explicitly to this point. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians this is, we call it the book of 1 Corinthians. It was actually a letter. This is in the New Testament. This is after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and after Acts, and after Romans, and not to sound silly, but before 2 Corinthians, you find 1 Corinthians, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right there towards the very end. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we're going to be reading verses 50 through 58, Honing in on verse 58, just one verse is really where we're going to camp out for a little while here this morning, but we're going to back up and start at verse 50. Uh, a little while ago in the service, we read from the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to come back and mention that again later as to why that was worth mentioning here at this point, but right now we're just going to read 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50 and on through verse 58. Hear now God's word. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is really good news. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for gathering us here on this day, this moment, this occasion. Thank you for that which we celebrate, not just spring, not just new crops, not just new beginnings, but something far deeper than that, resurrection hope, resurrection reality that gives us resurrection hope. A dead man who got up out of the grave. Life come from death. This is something that's incredibly disruptive. But oh, we need this disruption. This world needs disruption. Our lives need this disruption. We pray that you would bring it in the sweetest way, the deepest way, as you speak to us through your word. We pray in your name. Amen. It would probably behoove us to be clear in our terms. When the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, what is it speaking of? Let's be clear. When the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, it is not implying his influence living on, uh, his teaching, his his, the pattern of his life enduring on through the generations. Years ago, when uh, I believe his name was Makarios, the uh, president of Cyprus died, his followers, those who were sort of in his camp, went around the, the island of Cyprus spray painting on the building, Makarios lives. Well, in that sense, the man's influence carried on. It endured. But that's not what the Bible means when it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. Nor does it mean simply the resuscitation of a body. That is, a body coming alive, but then only to die again. Think of poor Lazarus here for a moment. You ever think about that? The poor guy had to do it twice. You can only imagine what that was like, that second go around. Oh my gosh, here we go again. You know, something, something like that. Well, the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. It does not mean that his influence lives on it does not mean merely a resuscitation. It is referring to the miraculous act of God, whereby the decay and decomposition of his body was arrested and reversed. Life comes in. His heart begins to beat again. His lungs fill with air again. Power is being demonstrated here, divine power. His body is transformed. He is risen and never to die again. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing has ever happened like it before, and nothing has happened since. Which then brings us to our, our text. Now, you need to understand, we need to understand, that when Paul, to, to whom Paul is writing, these, these um, believers, these Christians in the first century, mid-first century Corinth, that in that context, in the ancient world, when people thought of, of death, there was basically two ideas. One, 
death brought with it, they complete extinguishing the snuffing out of the candle, that's it, you're done. Or perhaps there were others who said, well, it's not that, but it seems to be some, maybe some shadowy, mysterious pseudo-existence in the underworld, the afterlife, we're not quite sure, but death is the pathway, the doorway, the entrance ramp into that. Those were the, the two ideas as to what death entailed. But the idea, the concept of a physical existence coming, a resurrection, after someone has died was believed to be just ridiculous. Children's fables, fairy tales, fantasy, mythology, ridiculous. Not unlike the way people think about it today. And so Paul is writing in, in, in that context to people who are surrounded with such ideas, and so his, his intention is to clear the air a bit, to clear the air and to help his readers, to help us still today understand that as a consequence of the real space and time resurrection of Jesus, there's a yet another resurrection to come. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Our own bodily resurrection, the resurrection of his, his followers when he returns. But this is something, that, coming back just to Jesus' resurrection, what we celebrate here this morning, this is not just something to be understood and talked about as a cool thing. This is something meant to be applied. This is something that's, that we are meant to, to, to live out of. The resurrection of Jesus, no exaggeration whatsoever, it's going to sound like it, but it is not, is the most significant event in the history of the world since the creation of the world. The resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in the history of the world since the creation of the world. It's not an exaggeration. It's just a fact. We're talking, it's as though a rock has dropped down into the reality of our lives, hitting the pond. And it's not just sending out little ripples. We're talking about tsunami waves of implications, of significance for our days, for our lives, yours and mine. We said it earlier, the traditional Easter greeting, Christ is risen, the response? See, this is a participatory sermon. Um, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We need to know what it is to live out of the significance of that event. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We need to know what it means to live out of the significance of that event. And you get hints of the significance of that event just in this one verse. Now, of course, there's a ton of other places we could go and weeks in terms of a long series of sermons that we could go with. Just one verse is where we're going to camp out here just for a few minutes here this morning. They're in verse 58. Resurrection reality, resurrection unity, and resurrection certainty. Each one of those things, tremendous in their implications. Let's look at these in turn. First, resurrection reality. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's very easy to overlook. The first word. Therefore. Therefore. What Paul is doing is he's connecting to everything that he has said already in view of everything that has happened, in view of everything as a consequence of that that is going to happen, think about the resurrection, lay hold of the resurrection in this way. Therefore, therefore, 
There's a few things that lie behind that therefore. First, the historicity of the events. We've spoken of this a little bit already in the service. I want to drill down on, down on that for just a, a moment. The historicity of these events. Paul is assuming that. His whole argument is grounded and founded on the reality of these things of something significant, earth-shaking in space and time. He is writing, historians, scholars believe, about 20 years after the event. That's not a lot of time. That's not a lot of time. Just 20 years. So he's assuming that these things are real. He's assuming that these things happen. And because of that, he's making some bold assertions. It's why going back to the beginning of the chapter, you see this survey of the events and the list of the witnesses. Paul is throwing down the gauntlet saying, fine, you don't believe me? Go talk to them. There's a bunch of people that saw this as a whole. There's more alive than dead. Go ahead. You don't believe me? Talk to them. That's the assertion. That's the, the gauntlet that he throws down. Let me put it this way. When it comes to criminal trials and how eyewitnesses are evaluated, Four questions are asked to determine whether or not they're worth listening to. J. Warner Wallace, uh, he is a retired cold case homicide detective from Los Angeles. He's written a lot of stuff about this, taking the way you, you, you take criminal investigations and apply it over here to whether or not the gospel is actually, the gospel writers are worth listening to. These four questions, well worth our, our consideration here. First, were the witnesses really present at the scene of the crime? Second, can their accounts be corroborated in some way? Third, have they changed their story over time? Fourth, do they have biases that could cause them to lie or exaggerate or misinterpret what was seen? Well, we can examine the Gospels with those very questions in mind. So here we go. One, two, three, four. First, present. Were they present? These accounts were written so long ago and so close to the events themselves that there were people present who could, who could speak as to whether or not these men knew what they were talking about. Can they be corroborated? Absolutely. Absolutely more so than any ancient historical documents. Did they change? No. Experts will tell you as you look at this and, and compare over the span of time a, a intact chain of custody as their witness was passed down generation to generation to generation and the copies were so beautifully held intact. Were they biased? Well, depends on how you ask that question. They certainly didn't expect any of this to happen. So they didn't go into that first Easter Sunday expecting this to happen. But then it did. And you can't help but be biased after that. You can't help but be swayed that something significant, something life-changing has taken place. Therefore, therefore, Paul says, keeping in mind the historicity of the events, the reliability of the witnesses, press in, lay hold of, lay hold of the resurrection in terms of how you think of these things. There are a whole wealth of proofs, of evidences we could talk about. All afternoon we could do that. A whole range, a wide range of arguments that we could, could uh, get into. That would be so very, very helpful. I just want to say this before going to the second point. If this morning you are wrestling with doubts, wondering, could this be true? I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought maybe, but I... Uh. Friend, you need not be rattled, and it's okay to have the doubts. 
it's okay. That's actually just normal. It's part of growing in spiritual maturity. Call it growing pains. It's just normal. And you need not be rattled. But if you're here this morning, and it's not doubt, but it's cynicism. It's skepticism. You're just keeping it at arm's length because you just think it's ridiculous from the very start. And it's not, my word to you this morning is not you need not be rattled, but you need to do your homework. You need to seek out the evidence and let it speak. Let it speak. The resurrection, Christ is risen. We need to lay hold of this, this most significant of events, in term, especially in terms of how we think about it. And that pushes us on to the second point. Really, really nothing else is worth saying unless it's true. Given that it is, oh my goodness, we have a lot to say. So much to say. Resurrection unity, not just resurrection reality, but resurrection unity, not just in terms of thinking, not just laying hold of it in terms of how we think about it, but laying hold of it in terms of how we relate to one another. Yeah, that's actually here. Again, it's easy to miss, though. Therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, when you think about this, this is really quite striking. Paul is saying, he's helping us to see that despite our differences, despite all that would separate us, despite all that would divide us, the gospel, the news of the resurrection can bring us together. Despite all of our differences, all that would separate, you think in terms of just right here, the author and the readers, Paul and these believers there in Corinth, who are, who, looking at both parties, who are they? You think of the walls that would otherwise normally divide the racial cultural divide in the first century. This is a Jewish man writing to these Gentiles far away. Not just that, but the ethical moral wall divide that would, you'd think would separate them and keep them apart. You have this former upstanding Pharisee, Paul, once known as Saul, writing to these believers in a city called Corinth that at the time had a horrible reputation for pagan idolatry and rank, crass immorality. I mean, to call someone a Corinthian in certain circles was an insult. And yet, and yet, though there be so much that would seem to separate them, there was so much more that they shared, so much more that brought them together, all that they had in common, all that they shared together in terms of common relationship and common partnership in the gospel that then drove them and impelled them to share of themselves and their things with one another. This is astounding, the resurrection and its implications and how it can bring people with such differences together. I was reminded of this just a couple weeks ago in a conversation with a gentleman by the name of, of Carl. Carl is from Eleuthera Island in the Bahamas. Carl is a, his career, he has spent his whole life as a policeman. His father is a retired contractor. Uh, Carl, as are 90% of the people that live on this island, his skin's a little darker than mine. He talks funny, with a British accent, kind of a Bahamian lint to it. Lilt, lint? No. Tilt. Um, and he drives on the wrong side of the road. 
Carl is a believer in Jesus. We could talk. See, all those things, all those things you think that would just keep us apart, and utter contrast and differences and distinctions, that are real, that ultimately mean nothing because we are both followers of Jesus. All the differences, all the differences, the resurrection unity just eclipses all of that, but not just that, this, this verse, there's just a few words in the beginning of this verse, tell us something not just about the differences being overcome, but the difficulties being overcome as well. Therefore, my beloved brothers, well, keep in mind some other things about this letter, not just the author and the audience, but the substance of this letter. If you go back and just scan through 1 Corinthians, you know what you see? You see Paul having to address things like internal strife within this church and all these divisions, him having to address some really rank, crass sexual immorality going on there in the midst of the church, legal wrangling, idolatry, worship wars. He's having to address all these things and saying some hard, strong things to these people. And you know what's amazing? Though he has to say these hard, strong things, it does not destroy the relationship. Now think about that for a minute, and our oversensitive culture in which we live today, and how insecure so many of us are just about saying a hard thing or hearing a hard thing. Hard, strong things being said and heard, and yet the relationships, the friendships are not destroyed. How can that be? How can that be? It's the resurrection the power of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's how these, the audience, the author, both understood themselves to be fundamentally both saints and sinners at the same time, which freed Paul, freed and impelled him to say the hard thing. And for his readers knowing who they were in Jesus, the security that they had in that, enabled them to then hear and receive the hard thing. It's, it's actually it's stunning when you think about this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. And he goes on there from there. My beloved brothers, lay hold of the resurrection in terms of how you relate to one another. Now, you might be thinking at this point, sounds great, but I, I, I don't see it. How, how could this possibly be? Three things, if you'll pardon the alliteration. I'm doing it that way only to help us remember it this way. Three things, how it can be this way, the resurrection and its power working in our lives. First, the principles that we have laid out here. Jesus has spoken He's made it very clear. He's given us his guidelines, his words, his law, his commands to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, go so far as to love your enemy. Those are our marching orders. Those are the principles that he's given to us to love, to love one another. Just that is worth considering, but not just that. He doesn't just tell us, but he shows us. So we have the principles and the pattern. Jesus himself loved this way. Jesus himself Go back to Good Friday for the greatest example of this. Submitted his desires to the needs of others, ours. 
So we have the, the principles that he lays out, the pattern that he gives us by which we're, what this looks like, but then the one who has shown us has not left us on our own to do this on our own, which takes us to the third thing, his power. His power at work in us, that we can live out these principles, that we can follow in his path, in his footsteps, according to that pattern. His power, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Yes, the gospel message is a transformative message. It is radical, it is subversive, it, has way, it works with its way into your heart and to your mind, but only ultimately does the change come as his Holy Spirit begins to change us from the inside out, taking hold of that message and making us into new men and women, enabling us, empowering us to love as we have been loved. Therefore, my beloved brothers, you see, this is not just, that's not polite platitudes. Paul is laying out, if you will, an invitation, a possibility, the very thing we're yearning for. Christ is risen. We need to lay hold, lay hold of this news in terms of how we think about this and in how we relate to one another. And lastly, the third point, resurrection reality, resurrection unity, resurrection certainty. How we live out our days, just our ordinary daily life. Everything, Paul is saying, everything that has happened and everything that is about that is going to happen, with that in mind, press forward. Let's look at it again, just verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Persevering, pressing on, holding nothing back, abounding in this work, recognizing who always we are ultimately serving, him, abounding, holding nothing back, not just that, standing firm, steadfast, though the ground may seem to be giving way under our feet, though the headway may seem so stiff, the, the, the grade of the hill so, so high, though the struggle may be so difficult and hard and painful, or maybe just our days in the ordinary are just boring. Being steadfast, standing firm, pressing on, persevering. When I think of perseverance, I can't help but think of a local woman, Wilma Rudolph. It's kind of funny, I heard somebody say, the ladies are meeting at such and such a restaurant on Wilma Rudolph. Well, I mean, that's a road today, but this is a real living person years ago in this community. Read you this excerpt about her, a short bio. I don't know how many of you actually even know about Wilma Rudolph besides the fact she has a road named after her and a pavilion down the way named after her. She's a hero. She's a local hero, maybe even we could say an international hero. Wilma Rudolph was born prematurely the 20th of 22 siblings. At the age of four, she contracted infantile paralysis caused by the polio virus. Until she was nine, Wilma wore a brace on her left leg and foot, which had become twisted as a result, and for another two years, wore an orthopedic shoe. In addition, by the time she was 12, she had survived bouts of scarlet fever, whooping cough, chicken pox, and measles. In 1952, at the age of 12, she followed in her 
sister's footsteps and began to play basketball. In the 10th grade, her potential was recognized in track and field, which she had taken up just to remain active between basketball seasons. At 16, she earned a berth on the U.S. Olympic track and field team and came home from the 1956 Melbourne Games with an Olympic bronze medal in the 4x100 relay. At the Rome Olympic Games in 1960, at the age of 20, she won the 100-meter, the 200-meter, and got her third gold in the 4x100 relay with a world record. After these wins, she was acclaimed, quote, the fastest woman in history. Think of this. In eight years, she went from overcoming the effects of paralysis to Olympic glory. A great example of perseverance in the face of adversity. And it's that kind of perseverance, pressing on, that Paul is speaking of here. But not a grit your teeth and just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps sort of perseverance. Paul is is a nuance to it, and it comes out in this verse. A perseverance with assurance. An assurance that everything matters. I don't know what came to your mind when you heard me read and you're following along that we need to press on and be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What came to your mind when you heard Paul write those words? Perhaps it was something along the lines of taking every opportunity that you have to tell your neighbor about the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Perhaps that's what came to your mind, but, and, and it ought to, but there's some other things too. Loving your neighbor in a time of crisis, just listening to them. Just listening. Or the student, whatever age that might be, students, knowing that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, which means that every subject that you put your mind to is an opportunity for exploration and discovery. Or parents of young children, knowing that every meal that is prepped, every nose that is wiped, every diaper that is changed, every story that is read is the work of the Lord. As long as it is done out of love for him and love for even the tiniest of neighbors, a desire to serve him, to meet the needs of the people around you and independence upon his spirit, his strength, We have the assurance that everything matters, nothing is wasted, and no matter what that work of the Lord is, it will be seen, it is valued, it will endure, it will last. So press on. Press on. Persevere with great assurance. Easter brings with it resurrection certainty. Everything matters. Nothing is wasted. The call to persevere and the reason, the hope, the assurance, all, put it this way, all of us, it doesn't matter ultimately what your personality profile is, whether you've looked at the DISC test, the Myers-Briggs, or the Enneagram, or whatever it is, Those are all helpful. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm simply saying this. It doesn't matter what your score is. 
All of us are ultimately hope-driven, future-oriented people. All of us. All of us. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not speaking of wish projection. It speaks of our having a solid hope. It does not mean the kind of hope that we think of when we say, oh, I hope it's sunny tomorrow. No way of knowing. I hope I get that good grade. I hope I get a raise. I hope I have the winning lotto ticket. The Bible speaks of hope. It speaks of certainty, of conviction, of assurance that God's promises will come to pass, and we know that because of who has made the promise. We have that kind of hope, resurrection hope. He is risen. We need to lay hold of the significance of that event, including in how we think of just our everyday normal pressing on, persevering with the assurance that we have. Let me end with this. I'm sure most, if not all of you, know of something, at least, of that terrible fire that hit the Notre Dame Cathedral this past Monday. And that set in motion mourning across the world. It didn't even matter if you were Catholic or not. Just knowing that this beautiful building was going up in flames and terrible, horrific damage done to the structure. Uh, it, is, it has been a fixture on the Paris skyline for so long, many people just almost have a sense of, what's well, just always been there, right? It's this, it's this thing. It's been there as long as, as the Alps, it sort of feels like. But, you know, even that had a beginning. It took centuries to complete, but the cornerstone was laid in 1163. There are other beautiful things that seem to have been around forever that actually had a beginning. The Christian message by the end of the third century had swept through the Roman Empire. And tremendous change, dramatic change was underway because of that. At the lowest and then building up from their societal levels, Changes afoot such that for the first time in human history, women were actually being respected. Children were being valued. The sick were being cared for. Martyrs, countless ones of them, taking a courageous stand. And time and again, the question was asked, and the question's asked still today, why? What set that in motion? What was the cause of that? Tracing back, if you will, the cornerstone. When did the rock drop? And scholars, historians today call it this, the Easter effect. Those changes began when a dead man named Jesus from Nazareth got up out of a grave three days later. And that had consequence, that had significance, that had impact upon his followers, his friends. And it set this all in motion. That's why we're here today talking about it. Imagine this, if I can throw a little science fiction into the mix. Imagine there was a time traveler who was alive in the years just prior to Jesus' arrival on the earth. And that time traveler skipped out 
and move forward several decades. Lands in and sees all this change. Those things I mentioned just a while ago, the societal things, the moral things, cultural, religious things in play. And he or she would have to ask themselves, what in the world happened? What did I miss? Easter. The reality of the resurrection. That's what set it all in motion. Christ is risen. Friends, we too, just as they did, we too need to know what it is to live out of the reality of the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, in one sense, we know that nothing's changed since that first Easter. It is all still true. Time does not make this fiction. Time does not make this a fantasy. This is still history. And we are mad, we are insane to ignore it. Blind. Nothing's changed since that first Easter, but oh, everything has changed since that Friday before. Without Easter, without these realities, we would have no reason to think for a moment that our sins could ever be forgiven, that we could ever be free. Talk of a kingdom and a king is just madness. Hope of a Renewal and our restoration to come is children's play without Easter. But you've given us every reason because we know it's real and true. So like those early Christians, we ask that you would help us. Help us to lay hold of the significance of the empty tomb today. We pray in your name.